the, uh, the amazing letter that we've been uh, following in our morning services from First John, chapter 4, and uh, there's a, the reference is going to come up on the screen for us, and it's verses 13, actually you can't do that, can you, with the text and the, um, yeah, there we are. So, John, 1 John 4, 13 to 21. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. At some point in your life, I imagine that you have asked that perennial question that philosophers and students and all of us go through, who am I? Why am I? Am I? I'm not going to get deeply philosophical. Uh, Descartes, well, here's one of the philosophers. You may know this in Latin, cognito ergo sum, translators. I think, therefore I am. That is the nature of the human being. Perhaps some uh, modern kind of commentator on our, our world and life has said, well, in, in our kind of consumeristic culture, now it would be more appropriate to say Tesco ergo sum. I shop, therefore I am. There are other supermarkets and grocery stores available. <laughs> Verse 13 of this profound pastoral letter begins, this is how we know. And that refrain, this is how we know, is something woven as a major theme, is, is something that runs as a deep vein a consistent witness in 1 John. Again and again, it's just worth noting how often John would have this phrase in this letter, this is how we know who we are and who God is. Verse, chapter 2, verse 3, this is how we are sure that we have come to know him. 
2.5, this is how we know we are in him. 3.10, this is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. Verse chapter 13, uh, 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life. Verse 19, this is how we know we belong to the truth. 3.24, and the way we know that he remains in us. 4.2, this is how we know the spirit of God. 4.6, from this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. 5.2, this is how we know that we love God's children. 5.13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants us to know Certain things. As, as Phil introduced this series, and we've been major on it, it's up there in a picture of mending nets. From that first glimpse of John and Simon at the lake shore when Jesus encountered them, said, come follow me. Peter, Simon Peter was fishing. John was doing what? Mending nets. And just that kind of awareness in what John brings through the Gospel of John and in his letters 1, 2, and 3 John in Indian Revelation of speaking to the church, of, of encouraging us to be mended, to be healed, to be restored, to be made fit for purpose, to find where there are frayed edges and gaps to be mended for the tasks and purposes called us to. This is how we know. It's about Jesus. And indeed, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. I'll come to that in a moment. We're not told in John's letter why he does this, but clearly kind of the inference is like any letter, if you receive any letters anymore, uh, emails, I suppose, there's a context, isn't there? Unless they're spam and they're just sent out. Well, even then there's a context. But there's a sense in which the letter is written because it's speaking into something. It's, it, it, it's focusing in on something. For John, the great patriarch who outlived any of the other disciples, he wanted the early church and by the continuation of his letters for us through every generation to know these things, to be mended, to know that we are indwelt by the Spirit, but also to be mended. As, as, we, as I said last time, in this uh, short section, there are about 30 references to love. Why does he major on that? Because probably there were moments in their experience as a church where love was being strained or people had fallen out of love together, that there were groups and divisions Who'd have thought that in the community of faith, in a church, there should be people falling out and disagreeing? Never experienced that, have you? I'm glad that it doesn't feel like I'm speaking to someone right now. Kind of like, mm, wagging the finger. But it's, it's important that we know this. Because in any relationships, there are always going to be tensions. Hurt. Disagreement, disappointment. And John says, I want you to know 
The Spirit is in you, and we're called to love because God loves us. Can you just drop onto the next slide, Chris? Because in this message, I was trying to think of an illustration, and, and right before us is the best illustration I can present to this passage. Of this meal, this supper, this bread and wine that we will partake, share in, experience again together. As we remember this moment where Jesus gathered his friends and one of them was the betrayer. Even in that most precious, profound moment where he showed them how the full extent of his love. John has that in chapter 13 in the foot washing. But in the context of the Last Supper, he shows them the full extent of his love. And he serves them with this meal, this testament, this new covenant. This, these images that have such the deep resonance all the way back to what the children are studying with Moses. Of redemption, of rescue, of being freed from slavery. And he says in that Passover that was come to set my people free. This is the new covenant. And it's all about love. But right there with Jesus' friends, he knew that Judas would betray, but he didn't exclude him. The bread and the wine passed his lips as well. And Peter said, I'll never, I'll never leave you. I'll never disown you. And it wasn't long before that cockerel crow crowed. If, if that sounds a bit oblique and, and strange because you're not used to the story, it's in the Gospels that, that, that Jesus predicted it. And, and, and as um, Jesus was being arrested and tried and, and all of the horrors he went through, three times Peter was asked, you're one of them, aren't you? No, no, no. And at the third time of denial, the cockerel crowed just as Jesus had said. Jesus knew this and yet loved. That for John, wherever he writes this letter to the church, he's wanting to remind them in their experience, look to Jesus. God is love. Easy to say, but here it's enacted. Here it's embodied. Here it is demonstrated for all generations and all peoples. God is love. He loves us broken and desperate and forlorn and alone and prideful and messed up. And you're wondering why you're here today to meet his love again. God is love. John is entirely working out pastoral theology of what it means for his people, us, to be together. We've all got a bit of a gossipy tendency of saying, what's, what's the truth? Youth speak, what's the T? If you've ever seen that, it took me a long time to understand it. What's the T? It means what's the truth? What's the, the story? And, and we don't know. John doesn't Lift the lid on what the problems are. I'd like to know, wouldn't you? Who's fallen out with whom? You know, what's gone on? We get that a bit in the other places. You know, Barnabas left Paul and John Mark and all those things. But 
John doesn't lift the lid on that. He doesn't sort of say, let's just look at the problem. He does want to hold before us the solution. He does want to major on love. I don't know where there are tensions, hurts, disagreement, betrayal, disappointment, feeling let down by someone or a church or a faction. The reality is we don't need to dissect every one of them. It could be there's a challenge in marriage or in your parenting or, or family relationships or, or friendships. A friendship has broken or isn't quite how it was or, or maybe in church life in your experience or even perhaps here now. I hope that's not true, but I don't know. Let's not deny there's a problem, but the solution John offers us is that of love. You see, reconciliation he is driving at. Love embodied in the fellowship. Love your brother and sister is at the heart of what it is about in the community of God. It is about that. That greatest command that when asked, Jesus says, love the Lord God with everything that you have. You, you know that, don't you? And love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, it would call into question that first commandment. We can't love God divorced from loving his people. It's really interesting, isn't it? That one of the verses that we use so often at communion, and, we'll, and I'll read it in a moment, is those lovely words of Paul. Do you remember them, 1 Corinthians? For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. You know those words? But we kind of lift them out of the context that Paul is writing them and helping them. It's, it's a privilege for us. But around those words are actually some words of challenge to the church in Corinth. Already in the, the beginning of that story, he, there's this kind of sense of some saying, oh, I'm following that leader, Apollos. And no, no, I follow Peter. And there's these sort of divisions and factions. And yet Paul says it's about Jesus. It's about Christ crucified. It's all about him. And I, I'm going to read for us in the Lord's Supper, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 18. Um, it's not on the screen, but please listen to it. Of how these wonderful words we use are entirely linked to togetherness, to being the people of God together, to being sisters and brothers. In the first place, Paul writes, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I think he's being a little bit ironic there. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Remember, the Corinthians were super spiritual, full of the Holy Spirit and ecstatic and wonderful things. God was with them. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. It's not because he's preaching a long sermon. It's his way of saying some have died. This meal, hosted by the Lord, is about the presence of God with us and his love for us and that love that we embody together. Just imagine, and hopefully it's not too much of a stretch of imagination, there's a table and the Lord Jesus himself has gathered us. And he's the one that will bring the bread and the wine around. And he'll look into your eyes, into your very soul and experience. And say, you are welcome here. Wouldn't that be amazing? And awesome? I don't know what's being stirred up with you. Maybe a, a drawing back and a, really? But he is here by his spirit. He does know us. And he wants us to be receiving and fed and strengthened. And he wants us to know more of who he is and what he's like. Have you failed him? We all have. Come to this table. Have you doubted? Even some amongst us today. You're welcome. Do you feel a bit of a shaman thinking, well, I might let him down again, or who knows what's going to come up? And uh, oh, you're welcome. He loves you. And this is what he's driving at, and this is why the Spirit has been given. He is um, in us, and he is the testifier. John has a lovely, lovely uh, extended discussion of this in, in John's Gospel. Have a look at it in sort of verse 14, 15, 16, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17. He just majors on the work of the Spirit and how he's been given, and how we come to know who we are through his work and what the Holy Spirit does. But he wants to remind, to mend the nets, to say, know that we are in the Spirit and also know that we are loved because out of that love comes our walk with Him from experiencing and knowing that we are in Him. How do we find our identity? Because we know we are loved. And once that is triggered in us, once that has gone deep and percolated through and through in every corridor and room in our soul and, and body and mind. We respond to the abundant love of God. God loves us. You see, this drives to the heart of the challenge. Do we, 
do we act out of, out of fear or love? Do you remember what he said? Perfect love drives out because fear has to do with these remarkable verses to say that when we stand before God, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because we know his love. What's the best way to parent? I'm not a parent, so forgive my sense, and I know you parents doing amazing things, but do you parent by fear or by love? Both can produce results. Sorry, what's going on over there? <laughs> how, long do you, how long do you give me? <laughs> Five minutes? Uh, Heckling is welcome. Uh, but which techniques work? We can enforce discipline by threat, by punishment, by coercion. We can make people do what we want. You just need a strong fist or a gun or power. But at the heart of that is fear. Or love. And love is greater. It drives out that fear. This meal, this sacrifice that he made, is entirely countercultural and revolutionary. Some theologians talk about the myth of redemptive violence that we only bring in the good by playing the world at its game. And this meal says, no, 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 no. Redemption comes through love. Redemption comes through the Son of God, the only begotten Son, the most, the, the perfect human being, the exact representation of the Father, of laying down his life willingly, brutally, to show the glory of God. John has it in his gospel. This is the glory of God fully revealed as the Son dies on the cross. This is the, the doorway into the new era and of the kingdom of God through love. Through love. For the Christians, this is the challenge because we sometimes skip into this thing. If it, I, God will bless me if I do the right things. If I've, if I've attended enough or know enough or proved it enough or given enough. All of those things are based ultimately in a following of law and the antithesis of love. You see, for Jesus in this meal, the disciples and us have not contributed one thing to this. But he gathered them and said, you can have this meal because I bring it to you. We can have the love of God because he brings it to us. 
Is our life shaped by the threat of law or the wonder of God's grace? Are we motivated by the possibility of God's disfavor and anger towards us? Are we a little bit trepid of thinking, dare I come before God? Will he listen to my prayer? He knows exactly how I failed him. Why, why will he listen to me? I, I, I can't. Who am I? Anything of that is driven by fear. Let's just name it and out it at this point and say there's a different way. God's unending love. If you think, oh, I'm going to sin again, I can't take this meal, I've let him down again, I'm still in that addictive behavior on that pattern of, of stuff, and I'm still swearing at my family, and I'm still uh, holding this grudge and this bitterness. Do you not know, it says the psalmist in verse 12 of 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And John drives this home. He says, what is our motive? Do we please God so that he would have favor on us? Or rather, we please God because he has already favored us. There's a world of difference. It's not the case of just try harder. Pull your finger out, buck up. Because he's given us the gift of his spirit. The very wonderful third person of the Trinity in us. And he is love. Generous love that brings assurance and drives out fear. God is not a headmaster. I remember having been summoned to the headmaster, and it was not very often. Just want you to know that. <laughs> it's amazing how fear takes root. On my gap year, I went back to my school, and uh, the teacher that had invited us, so I was 22, and um, we went back, and they said, oh, just come into the staff room. We'll meet you there. And I came into the school with the team that I was with, and we walked through the corridors, and I got to the doors to the staff room. They were always with the, um, they were always blinds down. It was like the inner sanctum. And when it opened, wafts of smoke came out. You can tell that dates me now, but that's how they used to be. And I, I remember going to that door, my, my, the, my friends, but it was like the, everything within me was like, you can't go in there. Fear. Or the boss, or the police officer, or the judge, or the tyrannical parent. You just don't feel confident. John wants us to know the assurance of his generous love. There is, can be no apprehensiveness, or shadow, or doubt, or fear about God's love for you. Let me say that again. There can be no apprehensiveness or shadow or doubt or fear of God's love and blessing and favor and delighted parenthood of him for you. He is a good father. 
when we fully comprehend his love. And this is such an example and such an enduring testimony of how massive the scope that we recognize love conquers fear. John never says that a failed Christian in their discipleship loses the love of God, not once. He never threatens them with a stick and says, beware, you might lose God. God is love. The challenge for us as we come to this table to embrace again his love, or are you slightly unsure? It's fear lurking. If there's anything that is shaping that anxiety or or, or wondering, have I lost his affection or favor? Has he withdrawn from me? We've not plumbed the depth of his love nor grasped his amazing commitment to us. Those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. That word abide means to dwell or remain, to make one's home there. Fellowship with God. And at this table, fellowship with each other. In whom God dwells. As we encounter him, May we encounter that a massive love and let it overflow to sister and brother. And may as we gaze at the cross and as we eat the bread and the wine, may the powerful, loving God refresh us, still us. Save us. A moment of quiet.